listening to audio from Faith Church, located on the north side of Indianapolis. If you'd like to check out more information about our church and ministry, please visit faithchurchindy.com. Hello, this is Mark and Nancy West. Scripture reading today is James chapter 1, verses 1 through 18. James, a servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ, to the twelve tribes in the dispersion, greetings. Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds, for you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. And let steadfastness have its full effect, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. If any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask God, who gives generously to all without reproach, and it will be given him. But let him ask in faith, with no doubting, for the one who doubts is like a wave of the sea that is driven and tossed by the wind. For that person must not suppose that he will receive anything from the Lord. He is a double-minded man, unstable in all his ways. Let the lowly brother boast in his exaltation and the rich in his humiliation, because like a flower of the grass he will pass away. For the sun rises with its scorching heat and withers the grass. Its flower falls and its beauty perishes. So also will the rich man fade away in the midst of his pursuits. Blessed is the man who remains steadfast under trial, for when he has stood the test, he will receive the crown of life, which God has promised to those who love him. Let no one say when he is tempted, I am being tempted by God, for God cannot be tempted with evil, and he himself tempts no one. But each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire. Then desire, when it has conceived, gives birth to sin, and sin, when it is fully grown, brings forth death. Do not be deceived, my beloved brothers. Every good gift and every perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights with whom there is no variation or shadow due to change. Of his own will he brought us forth by the word of truth, that we should be a kind of firstfruits of his creatures. This This is is the the word word of the Lord. Lord. So one day in seminary, I was out on an outdoor basketball court on campus playing around with some guys. And uh, we loved this court, not because there was anything uh, particularly fancy about it, but because off on the side, it had a hoop with an eight-foot rim on it, (laughs) which was great for kids or for seminary students who couldn't jump very high like I can't. Uh, So we were playing around and... um, Warning contains description of graphic injury. Uh, I went up to block a shot, and my finger got caught on one of those little loops that holds the net in place. So I come down, and my finger is eight feet off the ground, and I'm not anymore. And uh, I drive myself to the hospital, and they get me in the ER. The doctor looks at it, and he says, yeah, you're definitely going to need stitches. And then he did something I didn't expect. He got out uh, what looked like a really big hypodermic needle and fills it with a long draw of anesthetic. And then he jabs it right into the open wound. And after I stopped crying, I said, why? Why? Why did you do that? And he said, well, for several reasons. Uh, One, the skin is already broken, and it provides easier access to get the anesthetic right to the wound. And uh, the nerve endings are all in the top of the skin, so by going in underneath it, it it actually hurt less. 
I was doing you a favor, he said. <laughs> Don't do me any more favors, Doc. But he actually was doing me a favor. And yet, even after he explained it, I had a hard time believing it because the pain in the process made me doubt what I believed about the doctor and the whole process, right? I went into the ER trusting that these are good people, they're knowledgeable, they're there to help me, they want a good outcome for me, but the pain in the process of getting there made me doubt everything that I believed about them. You may have heard the phrase, trust the process, right? It's, it's become kind of broadly popular in our culture in the last five or 10 years. It, it means basically things may be bad now, uh, something not great is happening right now, but there's a plan, and, and it's all going to work out. When there's pain in the trials, when there's pain in the middle of that, what makes the difference is knowing that there's a plan and that there's someone who's working things for ultimate good. That's important, because there's hardly a week that goes by that we don't experience some kind of suffering or trial or difficulty. Think about your last week or the last months that we've all kind of experienced. Isolation, financial difficulty, maybe really profound relational struggles. Maybe uh, tension in your family. Or if nothing else, all the numerous things that are going wrong in the world and are really disturbing. And here's the issues that James addresses. What do we do in those trials? How do we respond to them? What keeps us from giving up when the pain in the process is great? And I, I think here's the thing James wants us to get. Trust the process to find joy. James wants us to trust the process to find joy. So if you haven't already, go ahead and turn in your Bibles or your scripture journals to James chapter 1. We're starting a new series this week, as you saw, called Practicing Faith. Uh, as you notice as we go through, James does not write his letter like Paul does. There's not a chapter of really deep, rich, theological explanation of who we are and because of what Christ has done for us. He just jumps in. And that's a reflection of who he is. Uh, there, there are four Jameses in the New Testament. Jami. Um, this James, singular, is the half-brother of Jesus, and he rose to a position of leadership and influence in the church in Jerusalem. And he's writing to Christian Jews, to the 12 tribes who are scattered in the dispersion. Uh, see, Christians of Jewish background had become objects of a great persecution early in the life of the church, even in Jerusalem particularly from their former leaders in Judaism. They were uh, hunted down in their homes, taken off to prison. Uh, a number of their leaders were killed, and the majority of them, Luke tells us in Acts, were actually driven out of the city and spread around the Roman world. So these people, these followers of Jesus, are experiencing fear, confusion, isolation, suffering, homesickness, they're wondering what's going on. And they're living in situations that seem like they could hardly get any worse. And with that background in mind, James writes in verse 2, Count it all joy, my brothers, when you encounter trials of various kinds. Is joy your first response to suffering? Yeah, me neither. 
Uh, that's not natural for us. But James says there is a way that we can grow to see trials that will actually lead to joy as we trust in the process. That's what we want to know. So let's jump in. How do we trust the process to find joy? First, James tells us to remember the goal. Remember the goal. Look in verse 3. Count it joy when you meet trials, for you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. And let steadfastness have its full effect, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. First, he says, remember the goal. There's actually a purpose that these trials would produce endurance, steadfastness, perseverance in us. They are for the testing of our faith. And that word testing there was used for the process of refining precious metals, of drawing out the impurities so that the metal would be everything it was intended to be. It would show its full value. So James is saying don't, I mean, he wouldn't use this language, but for us, don't think of like, you know, a factory assembly line and a quality inspector who's like picking off the bad ones and, and throwing them in the garbage. No, this is more like, Maybe when you were growing up, you, with your own kids or your parents did this, maybe you had a yardstick on the side of your pantry door, and you would measure, you would get measured, you'd measure your kids and mark them off as they would grow and mature. That's the picture James has. Because as we grow, as the trials come, as the things that stretch us happen, they test the substance of the faith that we profess. And James says the goal is that that would produce steadfastness, perseverance. Because as you go through the trials, as you persevere and remember the goal, the outcome is that we would be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing, as verse 4 says. That word there means totally fit for the purpose that it was designed for, mature, everything that you were meant to be. That's what God is doing in our lives in those trials. God is at work to make you, in short, like Jesus, to grow you to reflect more of his love, his joy, his faith, his goodness, his patience, his forgiveness. And the tools that God uses to do that are trials. And I'm like you. I wish God did it a different way, right? Like, it was a Disney fairy tale or something. And God just shows up and waves a magic wand that says, bibbidi-bobbidi-you, complete, mature, you. And all of a sudden, we looked like Jesus, and we didn't struggle with sin, and we didn't give in to temptation, and I was forgiving, and I was loving, and I was generous, and I was patient all the time. But God uses trials to grow us in difficulty because we live in a broken world full of suffering, and God uses those things to grow us. Now, that doesn't come easily to our understanding, right? Because God's ways are not our ways, and it leads us to wonder, God, okay, but, but why this particularly? And, and what do I do out of this? And so the second thing James says, in trusting the process to find joy we trust God to provide. We trust God to provide. James goes on in verse 5 
to say, if any of you lacks wisdom, wisdom for how to deal with this problem, wisdom for how to respond, let him ask God who gives generously to all without reproach, and it will be given him. But let him ask in faith. See, if I really believed that when we're confused, instead of running away from God, that, that I could trust, we could trust God to, to give me the wisdom instead of withdrawing and trying to protect myself. If I really believe that God wants to give me the wisdom, the insight that I need, why would I not run to him? Is it because I, I don't really believe that he's generous or, or maybe that he is fault-finding? But James says, no, he, he gives generously the wisdom that we need without reproach. We're never going to go to God and hear him say, why, God, you should be able to do that or you should be able to figure that out. No, God is saying, look, come to me. I, I want to give you the wisdom that you need. God never holds out. He never shames us. So why don't we come to him? Maybe we do come to him, but notice what James doesn't say here. He doesn't say, ask God to take the trial away and he will generously answer. He doesn't promise that God will even tell us why we're going through the trial. Maybe we'll find out one day in heaven. The promise is that God will give wisdom and help for what you're going through. So confidently ask, believing that he will answer because the one who asks in faith with no doubt, no doubting, but because the one who doubts is like a wave of the sea that is driven and tossed by the wind. That person must not expect that he will get anything from the Lord. He's a double-minded man, unstable in all his ways. Now, James is not talking about kind of the normal doubts that we have about, I'm not really sure what's going on or how God's going to do something good to this or why he's brought it. He pictures doubting as double-mindedness in verse 8. It literally means two-souled. It is a person whose loyalties are divided. They're going back and forth between trusting themselves and trusting God. And the testing of faith develops perseverance, but unbelief, that kind of doubting God fundamentally, makes us like a wave of the sea, totally unstable, blown about constantly by forces outside of ourselves. Joy in the trials comes as we learn to trust God to provide and ask for wisdom for the trial because he will answer. And yet sometimes the pain is so real, it's even hard to do that, isn't it? All we can see is the trial that's in front of us and, and the road seems so dark. It's hard to imagine any light at the end of the tunnel or anything good that's going to change. And especially in those moments, to trust the process to find joy, we have to maintain an eternal perspective. We have to maintain an eternal perspective on what we're going through. And that's what verses 9 through 12 are saying. Let the lowly brother boast in his exaltation and the rich in his humiliation, because like a flower of the grass, he will pass away. Lowly position and exaltation are kind of James's way of talking about wealth and power and status, okay? So 
those are issues that James is going to come back to. In fact, pay attention through this first chapter because James is kind of previewing a number of things as he's going to review later. James is talking to the people in humble circumstances, people who don't have a lot of financial resources or a lot of social power, to remind them that they already are exalted. They already have a high position in Christ. And the reason he points this out is because money promises a kind of exaltation. Money promises power and freedom and identity and security. And so the temptation is to look for money instead of God to give us those things. And James says, then when complaint or jealousy tempt us to pursue wealth, we instead find joy by remembering the riches that we have in Jesus. Because we have an exalted position in our humble circumstances that has nothing to do with money, that has nothing to do with what we can earn or provide or produce. The wealth that seems like it's going to solve your problems and make life great, it's going to disappear along with everyone that has trusted in it. Because that rich man will pass away. Verse 11, the sun rises with its scorching heat and withers the grass and the flower falls and its beauty perishes. So also will the rich man fade away in the midst of his pursuits. The rich, in contrast, are reminded that wealth is not their glory and money cannot save you from death. It comes to all of us. And the most important thing to pursue then is your relationship with God. Because one day you're going to stand before him, every one of us, and give an account for whatever God has entrusted into our hands to manage. And if God has entrusted a lot to you, what are you going to say? Oh, God, aren't you impressed with my wealth and my status? <laughs> like God's going to be impressed? I mean, it, it, all, it's, it all evaporates. You can't take it with you. And the person in humble circumstances is challenged too. I mean, what are we going to say to God? God, you didn't give me enough? God, you, you weren't rich enough to me in Christ? That every spiritual blessing in Christ was not enough for me? Don't you realize, James is saying, all the riches and wealth and status and glory that you have already in Jesus all the wealth, all the honor, all the blessings of heaven are at your disposal. The, the trial, if we can put it that way, of humble circumstances is going to lead us to joy if we realize that our hope and security are really found in Christ. And the trial, if we can put it that way, of high position of wealth and status will lead to joy when we allow ourselves to be humbled to see that that's not really what life is about and that I need a Savior just as much as anyone and money is not it. You see, that's why James calls us to persevere in whatever circumstance we find ourselves in. Look in verse 12. Blessed is the man who remains steadfast under those trials. For when he has stood the test, he will receive the crown of life which God has promised to who? To those who love him. Do you see what James is getting at? 
The crown of life is the ultimate reward, the final fulfillment of all the eternal life and exaltation with Christ, and, and that will be enjoyed by all who love and trust and follow Jesus. I want to live with one goal, I think James would say for us, to love God with my heart and mind and soul and strength and to love my neighbor as myself. And that's my calling regardless of whatever circumstance God puts me in. Faithful endurance in the place that God has put me will result in glory and honor and blessing. And the crown of that life, James says, is worth more than any advantage to be gained in this life. We find joy in the process as we maintain an eternal perspective. It helps us see that what we're going through now is about more than what we're going through now. James says persevering through trial leads to joy and glory and lasting reward, and it is worth it. It is worth it, and I need to know that in the middle of the suffering. And yet still, why does the process have to be so hard? Why does this thing have to work out this way? Why did I not get something different? James says trusting in the process that leads to joy means realize God is not bringing bad things at you. We actually have to acknowledge the real source of our struggle, James says. The real source of, of the conflict and the tension and, and the wrestling. Look in verse 13. Let no one say when he is tempted, I'm being tempted by God. For God can't be tempted with evil, and he himself tempts no one. God is not tempted by evil. It's not attractive to him. It's, it's repulsive. It's opposed to his nature and character. So he's not going to tempt you to do evil. He's not going to tempt you by evil. He's not going to tempt you by doing wrong to you. Have you ever been tempted to blame your circumstances for your behavior or your responses? Uh, my wife has this great coffee mug that says, I'm sorry for what I said before I had my coffee. Maybe you relate to those Snickers commercials. You're not yourself when you're hungry, right? I, I was a jerk because I'm hungry. I was surly because I hadn't been caffeinated properly. I mean, James is probably saying, you know, an honest mug would say, I'm sorry I chose not to speak like Jesus would just because I hadn't had my morning coffee, right? Of course people in circumstances affect us. We, we are all products of our upbringing, of our environment, of the reality, of things happening around us. Of course they have an impact on us. But we resist God's work for our growth by blaming those external factors for how I respond. That's the issue that James is getting at. That God's great concern is not so much what's done to me, but what's done by me in response to those situations. In, in the middle of a trial, why would I blame God as if he's doing something wrong? It's saying... God, my response is your fault because you put me in this situation. James is saying, no, no, that's not reality. Look at verse 14. 
each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire. What is James saying we are tempted by? Not by God because of the situation we're in, but because of what's going on inside of our own hearts. And he uses this graphic language of lured and enticed. It's literally about baiting a trap. The conflict arises not from God. I'm the one with the conflict inside of me. And I set myself up to fall into a trap when I say things like, you know, God, it's your fault that, you know, that guy over there got a better. How come he got the promotion? How come his family never seems to struggle? How come it always seems like those people got a better deal than I did? And he says, we are baiting a trap for ourselves when we do that. And and we're the ones who get caught. And then he goes on to use this imagery of uh, birth. When desire has conceived, it gives birth to sin, and when it's fully grown, it brings forth death. Sin, James says, is the union of my desires and then my looking for a way to fulfill them. And that gives birth to sin that leads not to freedom, not to joy, not to satisfaction, but to death. Again, James says that the greatest danger for me is not so much the things that I am going through, not so much the things that are done to me, but the things done by me in response. The real danger is that in response to my suffering and my trials, I may be tempted to turn away from God and run after something that will lead me to sin and death. Of course, James is going to go on in his letter. He condemns every kind of injustice and oppression and evil. And and God is not asking us to simply accept unjust or dangerous situations. But as far as what's going on in me, in the middle of those realities, God's desire is that the trial would develop perseverance that leads to maturity. And he's warning us about an alternate path that is temptation that gives birth to sin and leads to death. God's will is not that you give in to temptation, but that you rely on Him for perseverance that leads to maturity and wholeness in the middle of the trial. Trusting in that process can lead to joy even in the middle of the trial. So trust it. Because our response to how how we go through those trials really demonstrates whether or not we trust God Himself ultimately. Trusting in the process to find joy means I trust God's character and provision. I trust God's character and provision. That's the last thing James says here. I trust that God is good, that he is good and he gives good gifts to me. Verse 16, look, do not be deceived, my beloved brothers. Every good gift and every perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights with whom there is no variation or shadow due to change. Do you get what James is saying? God is not fickle. He doesn't decide one day to be kind to us and one day to be cruel to us. He he doesn't sort of go back and forth. He doesn't have two. God is not double-minded towards us. He is good and he is faithful. 
And his goal for us is to know him and his goodness in the middle of the suffering and the trial. And to believe that he really is the giver of every good thing that we have. That he does good to you in the trial in order to nurture the life that he has planted in you. See, instead of the sin, the temptation that gives birth to sin that leads to death, look in verse 18, of his own will he brought us forth by the word of truth that we should be a kind of first fruit of his creatures or of all of his creation. It's God's word of life that brings new life to us so that we become like the first fruit, the, the, the first blossoming of this renewed and redeemed life of God in the world, that, that we demonstrate God's life-giving power in us in the way that we respond. I mean, you walk around outside right now, and, and what do we see, right? Little crocuses popping up out of the soil, and daffodils blooming, and, and trees blossoming, and, and putting off new green leaves. That's what we are like, James says. This new life seen in you, in fact, might even be the cause of hope in someone else who is struggling. Because, you know, in my life, I, I have met so many Christian brothers and sisters who have and are living through gut-wrenching trials and horribly oppressive circumstances. And I've known men and women in those places that have turned their eyes to Jesus, reminded themselves of what James is saying, cried out to God in prayer, and he has met them. I don't know why in God's providence right now we're seeing more people in our own congregation suffering with terminal illnesses well before they would have a reason to expect it. And I have met with some of those people to hear them say, you know what? I don't know why God is doing this, but I know he's good. And he may heal me, and if he does, I'll, I'll give him praise and glory. And if he doesn't heal me, I want God to be honored in this trial. And I know that whatever happens, I win. Either I stay here and God blesses me or I go home to be with him in glory. That is eternal life. And may I say respectfully, pastorally, cautiously, that is worth more than anything we can have in this life worth more than wealth or power, worth more than a pain-free existence, to be able to say, I know that my Redeemer lives and he is good. That is eternal life. That is what God wants for you in the middle of trials, that kind of joy, to trust in God's character and rejoice in him. You know someone who is going through a trial. It may be you, maybe a friend, a relative, a neighbor, a coworker, somebody at school, somebody who's going through a storm. And I want to ask if you can think of that person, if you have your journals or sermon notes or bulletins, would you write down the name of that person? And ask that God would use you 
to bring hope and joy and perspective into that person's life. God cares for you, James says, in the middle of the trial. And he wants to change you. And then as you are changed, you go out and become an agent of change in that other person's life. We've all had that happen for us, haven't we? That we have been encouraged, that that we have known hope and joy because of someone else being able to tell us what God has done in their life. That, That God may even use you this week to share some of this truth and this encouragement that could help that person be reminded, God loves me. God is at work for my good. God has a plan and a purpose. This is where you will find strength that brings joy in the trials. Trust in the Lord. Trust in his process to find joy. Let's pray. Father, preaching and uh, praying through this passage is a humbling prospect because I feel like I'm walking on holy ground talking about the reality of real suffering and pain and struggles of a profound nature. And God, I hope, I, I pray that you would help us all to take these words and your word to us through James, not, in, not as being dismissive or discounting the reality of what we are suffering, but that you would meet us in the middle of the struggle. That, Father, we would not be overwhelmed. That you would help us to listen to your word to us through James. And Father, we, we pray for ourselves and for others we know who are going through real struggles and disappointment and pain and confusion. Oh God, help us and help us to help them to trust you in the process to find joy, to believe that there really is deep and lasting joy and eternal life in knowing you and trusting your goodness in remembering the goal, maintaining an eternal perspective. Thank you, Jesus. Thank you. We pray in your name. Amen.